moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent nerd, Dr. Jim. And with me is our very own deep-voiced co-host. Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB. Hello, LB. Hey, how are you? That's a very <laughs> muted, muted response. But uh, My voice hey. sounded really big when I said it the first time, so I was trying to mellow it out. No, that's, a, that's <laughs> the whole point of you being on the show is for your big voice. That's the only thing that you bring to it. So that's why wow, I have you around. not the good look. <laughs> great sense of humor or intellect, any of that. No, your wife actually put me up to that. So she, you can get mad at her. Today, we're doing a feature topic and the topic is focused on navigating a career change, but specifically navigating a career change as a mid-career professional. And in this particular episode, we're going to talk through how you switch functional areas of expertise and what you need to think about in terms of preparing for that move and what factors you need to consider as you're navigating that transition. So with us, we have our featured guest who's going to speak from personal experience. Lawrence, Jim, pleasure to be with you. I'm Stephanie Davis. I'm speaking to you from my newly designed home office in Boston, Massachusetts. I grew up here. I've grown up in the Boston area, went to school here, earned a, a degree in economics finance from Bentley University. At the time, it was Bentley College. I was actually born in the Bronx, but to have lived and worked here in the Boston area. My, my mother was working in the IT field when IT was punch cards. My dad was a reporter, journalist, newsman. We moved from New York to Boston when I was around four, five, to live with my paternal grandmother and great-grandmother. My father and mother separated, but the thought was that I would it would be better for me, I'm an only child by the way, to be here in Boston with my grandparents while I was going to school. So from, you know, I'd say from the age of four to the present, I've lived and worked here in the Boston area, attended private schools, both in grammar and high school. And then, as I said, earned a degree in economics and finance from Bentley University, which is a, it's a business school located in Waltham, Massachusetts. Now, before we get into the meat of the conversation, I probably have the most important question that you're ever going to be asked in the history of important questions. And that is how big of a Red Sox and Patriots fan are you? Because this is going to shape the rest of the conversation. I'm a homer. I'm a Red Sox fan all the way. I used to work, a little aside, I used to work at Fenway Park. And my some of my earliest growing up experiences were with the Red Sox, just enjoying sports in general. Boston is a very sports, Boston is a sports team. I can say that I remember when the Patriots weren't the Patriots of the past 20 years, they were the laughing stock of the NFL, but it's been a great, these past 20, 25 years have been a great run for all the teams. So I'm a total, I'm a total sports homer, love them all, but follow fall sports in general, but yes, Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics, Bruins, 
Revolution. So I think I'll put this disclaimer out. We have a very broad audience and I would like to think that our audience is pretty understanding. So I'm fairly confident that they won't hold your fandom against you when uh, we get into the meat of the conversation. I hinted at this in the beginning of the of the show. Whenever you're making a transition from one career to another, that's a difficult transition to navigate. And it becomes increasingly more difficult the older that you get and the more technical a field that you're in. And then when you compound issues of race and gender into that conversation, it can be sometimes overwhelming in navigating that change. And that's uh, that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on the show, because we've known each other for quite a while. And I know the transition that you navigated, and I think it would be an important conversation to share your learnings of how you pulled it off so that other people that are looking at doing the same thing have an easier path and can avoid some of the roadblocks that that they might encounter. I want to wind it back a little bit and talk through your sort of college experience. We touched on a little bit of your early background, but you came into the world of work coming out of a business-focused and economics-focused career and degree path. Why did you land in those two areas? And then how did that shape what sort of early career opportunities you sought out? I've always been fascinated by money, business, commerce, and how. what is the system for understanding how all that ties together? So it seemed logical that, and I've read some economics, I would just read it informally, and I thought, well, this is interesting. Why don't I, why don't I pursue this line of study? And because it's a unique, Bentley has, that's a unique degree. It's not an economics major with a finance minor or vice versa. It's economics, finance. So it gave me an opportunity to study both of those disciplines, part theory, part application. When drawing you into that path, there was an initial level of attraction or fascination with it. How did you end up landing? You spent quite a bit of time, and I I don't want to get too far ahead in the story, but you started out in financial services as the early part of your career. What was it about that particular sector that attracted you and drove you to it? As one graduates, one has to say, now how am I going to earn some money? So I started applying for jobs and I sent an application into a company called Technical Data, which is then a division of Thompson Financial Services. I received an interview. And when I went into the interview and was offered the position, it was a position as a technical analyst for the foreign exchange desk of technical data. And I said, why am I being considered for this position, why did I get it? it was, I knew one thing. I knew multiple things, but the one thing that was attractive was Excel. Excel. Now, interestingly enough, I never used Excel in the position, but what we were doing is to, technical data would provide third-party objective institute advisory services to the institutional investor investment community. So hedge funds, trading desks, high net worth investors who were putting want to know where to allocate their funds. And so that was what that's what the business model of technical data was at that time. And the foreign exchange market is the largest financial market in the world still. So they were looking for someone who could A, write and B, perform analysis, short to medium term analysis for the readers of that service, which was disseminated through the Dow Jones Tellerate system, which is now part of the Wall Street Journal. But and that, that's how I got my start. So I was a technical analyst on the foreign exchange desk 
And the thing I liked about it was that that I would receive calls from customers reading the page saying, well, what do you think about asking me what I thought about the market? So that made me feel that made me feel important. I like that. And it also as part of the job, we would all the analysts, not just myself, would receive calls from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Reuters to give commentary on the direction of the markets. And so anytime the markets were moving, anytime the Fed was going to be meeting, they would ask for all of our opinion on the markets. And so that gave me an opportunity to not just to do something technical, but to translate that into something practical people found. So it was a nice, it was a nice way for me to apply my analytical skills, but it was also good communication builder and it was great for confidence. So that's what I found. I enjoyed that type of interaction. Was there anything on your upbringing or your parents or any exposure to any particular segment of society that kind of piqued your interest to take you down that path? Maybe it's a good question. Maybe part of it is as an only child, I enjoyed reading. I was very much, I'm a self-motivated person and I'm also someone, I think I'm in, I am intellectually curious. So I just pay attention to the news and you would hear about, read about certain things. and You'd want to know what's the story behind that? Why is that? Why is that happening? So I've always had a, an intellectual curiosity about almost anything that's going on around me. And I want to understand why. With finance, economics, business, those are people and they make money which is something that, frankly, I found that that appealed to me. Uh, I remember reading Barbarians at the Gate, which was a story about the takeover phenomenon, Mike Milken, Colbert, Kravis, and Roberts. And I thought, that's, I didn't understand it, but it sounded interesting. It just, it appealed to me. So I would just say I'm an intellectually curious person. And I found my father was, he liked to play the stock market a bit. So that had had something to do with it. But I would just say it was just something that appealed to me on an intellectual level. And I thought, well, I I could probably do this somehow. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because it's an important call out about intellectual curiosity because it it creates an advantage overall. And it's interesting to hear how it took you down this path into finance and into tech, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. Yeah, and that was, was all, I should say, that was also around the time internet 1.0 and this transition into client server, that those aspects of the technology revolution were also taking place as as well. So we've come a very far, we've, this country's technology sphere, sphere, look, I don't want to jump ahead, has really, in the past 20 to 30 years, it's amazing what has happened. And when I look back, back on it, it's almost like when I started, it was the Stone Age, which it was compared to where we are today. One of the things that you mentioned in the early part of your career, you're talking about some of the blocking and tackling of the sector that you served and the work that you did. It seemed, it came across that that you seem to enjoy the uh, the part of the role where your input is being asked by all of these publications. So when you look at your early career and the work that you were doing within finance and the foreign exchange markets, what were the aspects of the job that you really enjoyed? What were the aspects of the job that didn't really align that well for you? You're sitting down at a desk every day. You sit down at the desk and you say, what's going on in the world around me? And you have certain responsibilities. At that time, 
the, our customers were paying, it was a paid service. So they, on my watch, they were looking at the, it was called the Chartist. It was Forex Chartist. And it was through, they received the service through, as I said, Dow Jones Tellerate, a terminal or Bloomberg. And they would be looking for certain, this was before the Euro, by the way. So you'd have the yen, the Deutschmark, the Swiss franc, people would be looking for levels that we were recommending to them to position their portfolios. So every day you'd have to take, you'd have to identify what those levels, what the optimal trading levels would be, what the optimal trading strategy would be to enter the market, to exit the market. And if something dramatic happened, if the Fed raised rates or some government got toppled or something happened, then you would see this dramatic shift of capital out of the market and the page that you had carefully landscaped, because you're looking at a page with levels, it would all be, it would all vanish, it would all be irrelevant, and I'd have to rebuild it. So that was, it was fun, but it became tedious after a certain point. I like parts of that. And then after a certain point in time, that became tedious. I was like the relationship with the customers who would call me to ask me for their advice. And I remember once I had gone out to lunch and when I came back, my, my manager said, you have a call from a customer. And she said, I told him that I was your manager and that I could answer the question, which she could. But he said, no, I want to wait until Stephanie comes back from lunch. I want to speak to her directly. So it was things like that. I felt like I had built a, I could build a relationship with the customer and that they trusted what I had to say. How did that, I guess, enjoyment or desire for the interpersonal connection drive your career trajectory or navigation within the financial services sector? I saw the opportunity or felt that I had an opportunity to, to transition some of my analytical skills to a financial planning capacity. So I went from the buy side to the sell side of the financial services and began working in risk management and financial planning and doing some sales and marketing, which gave, again, gave me the opportunity to give advice, help people, deal with people, but also apply some level of technical thinking and acumen to what I was doing. So I did that for about five years, between five, six years, between risk management, financial planning, marketing, and some sales where I was perhaps supporting some of our field people and helping to position financial products, in this case, for small business owners, whether it was employee benefits or compensation or wills and estate planning. But I still had the opportunity to use some of my technical abilities. So it was a com- it was a combination of the two, but it was more in line with, there was more interaction with the, with the client. So there was advice and there was that combination of advice and technical ability with a little more selling, a little bit. I'm not a great salesperson, but I figured it would be useful for me to to get some exposure in that area. We've definitely talked to several guests that have talked about the importance of sales. And so I guess even if you say that you're not necessarily good at it, I think that you do bring up a very good point, at least getting that exposure is what, you, what I understood you to say, that it was still helpful in the overall process of what did you want to, what you wanted to accomplish. My father would say from time to time, he would say, everything is a sale. No matter what you do, you're selling something to somebody. And I never 
that thought had never occurred to me. But as it turns out, as one goes through life and looks back on what their parents say, oh, yeah, he was right about that, too. So he would say yeah. everything is a sale. Jim and I have oftentimes laughed about this, the whole idea and notion of you're either selling or being sold. So it's great to, to understand it and be on either side of the equation. I prefer to be on the selling side. I think that when you think about it, it is an important element at its core. Something that you've talked about to a great extent is about this idea and notion of relationships. And I think that does, in fact, help you to be stronger and the idea of working with people. I was curious about this, though, as you were talking about the finance side and you were sprinkling a little bit of the, the technical side of things. Can you share with us a little bit about how you made the transition from finance to the data? And technical side of things. Well, I must say that the one key, if I had to give before I go into this, it's relationships. If you can build effective relationships, you can do anything you want. So I'm very good at building relationships. And a friend, rather casual, said there's an opportunity for you to work in a transition into somewhat of a managerial position with some opportunity to drive sales, revenue, inventory for LG Electronics. They're trying to build their brand brand awareness in North America, and they're looking for someone to manage their northern New England territory. And if you're interested, I could probably get you an interview. Well, that's interesting. That wasn't something I'd ever thought about, per se, but it's an opportunity to broaden my horizons and develop some managerial and leadership skills. So I thought, okay, let's see where this leads. Long story short, I got the position. And again, I'm here in Boston, but I had the New England territory building B2B relationships with major accounts, LG's major accounts. So you're talking about Sears, you're talking about Walmart, you're talking about Home Depot, you're talking about Best Buy, managing the relationship at the with the store manager, his or her team, and the district management of those major accounts. So that was appealing to me because A, there is some analytical skills involved in figuring out how your sales are doing, where you're doing with sell-through, how my team is doing with sell-through, how we're doing with inventory managing inventory, training, and interacting, again, with the, uh, the decision makers of these major accounts. So that gave that helped me broaden my skill set to not only technical, but marketing, some sales, managing a, a distributed team, and developing strategy. When you're looking at numbers, then you have to decide, based on that, how am I going to drive my sell-through or my team sell-through to attain the goals that the company has that has set. So I did that. I got excited because you covered so much in that little snippet, because when you talk about the relationship building, I know we'll get into this a little bit, but what, what I was thinking as you were saying that is, is we're talking about career transition. And it seems to me that one of the ways that you were able to, and I don't want to project, but I'm just excited about sharing this part, is that you talked about the network and the relationship building and just very coolly and calmly, you mentioned that's how you actually got the LG opportunity, right? It was based off the relationships. It was based off the network. People knew your brand, believed in that brand and said, hey, I have an opportunity. And so we've talked about this in several of our shows about this whole idea of having an advocate. So you had the opportunity 
to create the advocate, the advocacy, you were in the driver's seat and you sound very intentional about, yeah, I'm very good at relationships. I'm very good at building partnerships. And it's fascinating to me when people have a good sense of that. And I think this is an important call out for those of us that are listening to leverage that. This is one of the ways in which you can have the kind of success that you've had in terms of being able to transition. Very few things happen in life without a relationship. Whether it's, you look at the this controversy in the NFL over coaches, that's a relationship business. And somebody found out, for example, that most of those coaches are married to somebody in the, they have a marital relationship. There's some interpersonal relationship they have with the team that gives them an edge over everybody else who wants those positions. So I don't want to drift, but my point is, it's all, it's everything is a relationship. And if you have, if you know how to master relationships and build networks and optimize those networks, you can get, a, you can accomplish a lot. You can go very far. The other thing that that I was that I was laughing at inside is that so everyone talks about again to your point not everyone but a lot of people talk about the idea and notion of like social media influencers and as I was listening to what you were saying I'm like oh she's she was an influencer before the whole idea of influencing was a thing and I mean for more of the for the new for the younger generations that this influence again is that ability to help convince to help drive outcomes and I think when I listen to what you're saying, that's an element, too, of having the ability to influence based off relationships and based off of networking. Even what you described just now about the NFL is that really a lot of that influence is around what you described as like the relation, the actually family relationships that exist there that people get these shots and opportunities. Right? I don't want to jump the gun, but I think that uh, social media for me, I use it as a tool. It doesn't use me. I use it. I'm not wailing on social media 24-7 because I don't find it that appealing, but it can be a tool for me to get the things that I want to get. Right. So, But relationships are key. And they're all around you, by the way. And you have to be very, you have to read the room. You have to always be paying attention because there's always things going on around you. And if there's something you want, there's probably somebody around you who can help you get it. If you're paying attention, which is something else I'm very good at doing. I'm, somebody told me I have very high situational awareness. One of the things that stood out about the answer that you gave a little while ago, you're, you're, as you're navigating your trajectory, you're picking out these different areas or functional areas of expertise that you want to build. You started off at the analyst side. You wanted to expand the relationship side. You shifted from the buy side to the seller side. Then you navigated into sales, gave you experience in that functional group, which also gave you some exposure to distributed team leadership, gave you exposure to managing a team, all of these different pieces of the puzzle. Now, did you pick those things out intentionally or was it just something that organically evolved? Because the way that you described it, it struck me as, okay, these are specific things that you at some point or somebody else at some point said, you need to shore up these areas or at least get exposure in these areas for a bigger plan. So what was the bigger plan behind getting those the, those different flavors in your arsenal of tools in the, in, in the world of work? Well, I knew I wanted to be in the IT world, but I also felt personally that I needed to be 
I always thought I should be a, as a CEO type that you have to be well-rounded. I assume that they have mastery or at least familiarity with a multitude of subject areas. That we're told that we are the CEOs of our own career paths. So I was taking opportunities as I saw them, and it's not particularly intentional. I'm like almost more Forrest Gump, but I have certain interests that lead me in a certain path, but I can't say that I'm the most intentional in the in the bigger sense. But in certain areas, I do have a strategic focus, but I would not say that it's, I would say it's more organic with some, again, attention to detail and opportunities arising within my network and relationships that I've built. When you were going through that process and then you made the decision to, look, I need to make a strong play to get into the IT space and get out of the finance space. And I'm not even sure if that was that distinct a decision. What were the things that you set up to help navigate that change or facilitate that change? What was the process that you went through to make that switch into IT from finance? One thing that did happen that I didn't plan is my mother passed away. So that kind of gave me, that was probably the biggest life-changing event I have ever had and probably anybody will ever have because it forces you to, I, it gave me a sense of vulnerability because I'd never been without my mother. So that was, for me, that was something that caused me to step back and say, where am I, where am I really going? And what do I really want to be doing with my life? So I kind of, that gave me an opportunity to take a pause. I said, I need to just chill out for a bit. So what I did at the, in the meantime, I bought a Mac, the first Macintosh computer that I had ever owned. And I started playing around in the terminal. I discovered this terminal. And then I learned, oh, this is Linux. What's Linux? So I got into, I, I earned a Linux certification and I started attending meetups. This is pre-pandemic and programming and meeting different people and learning the language. Now I'm focused on coding, learning how to code, mastering, really getting into detail, a detailed understanding of what I thought would be an entree into technology, which was administration and IT admin and service administration. And that that was my entree. I was obsessed with this. I was on that, my computer in the terminal and learning as much as I possibly can about Linux, every flavor of Linux that I could possibly learn how to install different flavors of Linux, how to master virtual computing, as I said, some coding, playing around with Python and attending meetups where there were employers that were looking to hire people. I'm not a great coder. Nobody will ever hire me to code anything, but I at least had a working knowledge of the language so that I could speak intelligently with potential employers about those opportunities. So. Another thing you have to do is when in Rome, learn how to speak and do as the Romans Romans do. So the introduction to Linux opened up a whole new world for me. And I would publish it on a, I had a blog. So I would publish what I was learning on the blog, thinking that would give me some credibility. If people wanted to know, what do you know? I could say, I publish on this blog. And I wound up, buddy from Amazon LightSail picked up. Maybe I put it on Twitter and said, can we write about you? Because I'd got myself into a mess. I like to break things and then fix them. And I I made a mess of 
I'd gotten into a problem that I needed some technical support and I published this long detailed exposition of how I got out of it and say from Amazon found it, I guess it was on Twitter and they said, can I, can we write this up? I said, sure. And so that gave me some credibility and in the, now I'm in the IT space and I developed a relationship with someone who was actually doing IT service management work. And I did some consulting with him and he took an interest in helping me progress. And I was able to put that on a resume. Long story short, companies, the United States Department of Labor, a, an apprenticeship program. So we know what apprentices are plumbing the trades. There is a, it's very popular in Europe and it's becoming popular, more popular here in the States, IT apprenticeships. So I learned of and applied this IT apprenticeship where you are actually trained in specific areas and employers are looking to hire you because they're desperate. They're looking for trained IT people. And so I passed through this apprenticeship program and I had an immediate position within nine months, the program, you pass through the program and you have a position and that's where I am now. There's a, a couple things out of that story that are pretty interesting. You, earlier on in our conversation, you mentioned, hey, I'm not a big social media person. It's a tool just like anything else. And I'll leverage it how I want to leverage it. But when we look at how you navigated that, I think one of the big things that I talk about with people that are considering career switches is you have to develop your voice and extend that voice on any platform that you feel comfortable with so that it gives people an idea or a window into who you are, what you're about, and what you think. Because by making yourself vulnerable like that or exposing yourself like that, it actually opens up a lot more opportunities that you might not even be aware of. But for you posting sort of your journey or your learning journey on your blog, there's an argument to be made that you might not have actually accelerated to that point if you're like, hey, nobody wants to hear anything that I have going on. I'm just going to keep my head down and do my thing. So that's an important lesson. But the other part of it is when you're, when you know, I don't want to short sell what you just did. Because when we look at transitioning into technology and some of the biases that exist when it comes to hiring that happens there, you have to have a computer science degree, you have to fit a certain profile, you have to come from these places or do these types of, I'm referencing the tech bro culture, that completely bucked the trend by leveraging your network again, going where the people that, uh, that hire for these roles and getting yourself out and building a network across those communities to give yourself an opportunity. So when we're asking the question, well, how do you navigate this? Lesson one is you have to make your learning journey to the level that you're comfortable. Lesson two is you have to find and embed yourself into the communities where your target audience or your target employers hang out and engage in those communities. So if you want to go a non-traditional route, those are two key things. And I think it's important to, to say that out loud. I think what's interesting is that you've that's twice that you never really had to formally na navigate a quote unquote job search to make that career switch. Your curiosity and your ability to give people a window into your learning created those opportunities for you. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but how do you respond to my analysis? I think you're you Sherlock Holmes that very well, because I'm going to write a resume and send it to somebody because you'll never get anywhere. That's it worked for me one time. 
but every other time it was the basis of a relationship. Then you send the resume, then you have the conversation, and then you move forward. But sending resumes blindly is it's a waste of time. What you want to do is again through relationships, some somehow, if even if it means going on LinkedIn and targeting somebody you want to talk to and asking them for an interview, that's a more personal way of getting your foot in the door than sending a resume blindly. I happen to like the Wall Street Journal. There are names and companies and titles throughout that publication. So if you wanted to get into an industry, in all likelihood, that paper, and I'm not selling it, but that paper or Yahoo or Google or whatever, you can find out who the CEO is or who the whatever it is position that you want to which they tell you who it is. So that's so now you know that there's probably six degrees, six degrees of separation I found is true. I think that's the basis of social media. These relationships is somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who knows whoever it is you want to talk to. And your job is to try to navigate that strategically to get where it is you want to be to develop a relationship with that person. Steph, you're you're talking about a complex sales process right there. This is a buyer-seller relationship that you're describing. You are the seller of a particular set of services in terms of your career trajectory. You're trying to engage your network and find the person that is willing to buy those services and bring you in. And what you're talking about is navigating that that journey of identifying who the buyer is. It's stuff that I talked about all the time and I advise candidates on all the time about, hey, don't throw your resume down the ATS black hole because it's somebody might, if you're lucky, spend eight seconds looking at your resume and put it in, in the appropriate pile. You're better off taking a sales approach, which is people buy from people who they know, like, and trust. So how do you visibility how do you build credibility? How do you build trust and likability? It's by engaging your network and going di- directly to the person that is the buyer, or at least trying to find who the buyer is. So that's, I think if people are looking for any sort of advice when it comes to navigating a career change, that more than anything else is, uh, is pretty solid advice. I know you covered a lot, but if you were to break it down to three, one of mine would be For example, that intellectual curiosity, I think you are absolutely spot on. But what are some of the other key ones that would be important for folks to to lean in? I would say situational awareness. Pay attention to detail of what's going on around you. For me, it's intrinsic. I just, I'm always, I'm like a shark. I just, if there's something going on, I, I can sense it. Pay attention to detail. Always be networking. Hone your communication skills. In the end, no matter how brilliant you are, no matter how great your idea is or ideas are, if you cannot sell them and if you cannot communicate with people to get them to buy them, it doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So situational awareness, intellectual curiosity, always networking and to be an effective communicator. And I think those are great cheat codes for us to be successful. And more importantly, I think on topic of being able to navigate a mirrored career transition in your role. And I think this is really important, Stephanie, for anybody really at any point in their career. So I do appreciate that advice. I think I have found most people, the vast majority of people are willing to help you in some way if you ask. 
Absolutely. That, that people are not brutes. They want to help if they can. And you should be willing to reciprocate, by the way. I like to, that I'm willing to do that for others too. But in general, don't be afraid to say, I need some help. Or can I talk to you about this? I'm trying to do this. Can you help me? You have to have some idea of what it is, you, what the ask is of the individual. But if you ask, I found that people, they'll help you. Absolutely. Thank you. And we appreciate you being a part of the show. I hope that our listeners will be able to check us out on their favorite podcast platform. We are also all over social media. And of course, we want to use it in a way that Stephanie has helped us to understand social media today. You can find us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, and we look forward to catching you on the next episode of Cascading Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.